Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. So many Americans rely on child care, yet the industry continues to struggle for a variety of reasons, reasons that have been exacerbated in the pandemic. Now, Connecticut got more than $330 million in federal dollars to help child care providers. But what sustainable measures have been put in place to serve families and help keep these small businesses open? Today, where we live, we talk about child care in our state. Coming up, we hear from a national organization based in Connecticut that aims to support child care workers who operate family child care centers. And we talked to Beth Bai, the commissioner of the State Office of Early Childhood. Are you a parent who has struggled to find child care where you live? Do you operate a child care center and have run into challenges staying open? We want to hear from you, too. Our number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Veronica Phelps. She's director of My School in East Hampton, Connecticut. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So how long have you been uh, in the early childhood field and how many years have you been open? I have been in the field since 1988 and I started my own center in 2001. So we're on our 20th anniversary, 21st. So congratulations for for making it that long. You've served and helped (laughs) a lot of families. Would you say that this has been the most challenging time of your career? Absolutely. Positively even from when I started and not knowing what I was doing in the beginning and learning everything at once, this uh, is much more stressful and, and consuming. So talk us through what you've been experiencing uh, in the pandemic, especially now in this last couple of months, when we think about the number of children you typically served uh, over the years and how that changed with COVID. Well, um, our capacity here at my center, this will just give you a snapshot is 80 and right now we only have 29 so we are are nowhere near where we need to be and that's um we wouldn't be open right now unless we had gotten some grants from the uh, office of early childhood has been really helpful in getting us uh, funding and supplies but apparently that's all dried up now and we're kind of left high and dry that's a big decline so what does that mean for the people you employ well, everyone, it's very stressful and we're not sure what to do. We're trying to do everything from expanding our program and incorporating infants and toddlers, which we haven't done in the past. We're trying to bring in parents to help us pull this, everything together. We're doing assessments for are we going to even have clientele for enough to sustain us for rent and insurance and all those crazy expenses that we have. So we're trying to figure out next year. Unfortunately, our budget year starts in July. So we have this small six months to figure out what's going on. We might close. When I asked you about uh, your capacity and issues over enrollment, 
Can you talk about that, about some of the, the factors that are leading to that decline, especially when we're in the surge and there have been so many quarantine periods and for families? It is. We have a great council that we have in town. It's the East Hampton Early Childhood Ed Council, and we collaborate with the other centers that are in town. And we have one center that had to close two rooms, and that's huge. And then we, they found out they had to close another two. So it's it's the between closures and parents not thinking you're reliable if you have to close and just thinking you're doing that as a whim or whatever, then they start to try to shift and go to other places, and they take away the small funding that we have as it is. We've been fortunately only to close once so far in this all this insanity, but um, kids aren't attending that would attend because there's no vaccination for under five. And our preschool program, our, our mainstay is the three and four-year-olds. And uh, another hurdle is that all of the conception even of, of early childhood has been that it's not worth taking, you know, having the kids even come that are wearing masks or the four-year-olds that are vaccinated but it really is worth them attending preschool because one of the conceptions about preschools to begin with is that it's babysitting, but it's really not. It's really getting those kids ready for kindergarten and getting ready for the next 12 years of education. And they're learning not just the academics, ABCs, but most importantly, when they walk in the door to go put their things away and settle in and, and be with your friends rather than climbing up coat hooks and knocking everything off shelves, which are where the kindergarten teachers sometimes have to deal with when they get to kindergarten if they haven't had a good preschool experience. So the the perception of, of what the early childhood educators do is is very important to why you know parents are making decisions. Oh, we'll just leave them home for another year and just they'll get what they need in kindergarten. They really get such a strong foundation when they come to the early childhood ed programs and not just the three and four-year-olds, but also the smallers, the littler ones, the toddlers. Um, it's it's a huge impact. And especially the way that we've learned now how the brain develops, having all this experience, it's all lost. So when the kids get to kindergarten, they're going to be even further behind. So we're really trying to pull together and, and keep this going. It's a great thing. It's an important thing, but it seems like we're hitting a wall. So many factors coming together at once that's uh, causing this crisis in, in the child care industry um, outside of the pandemic, thinking about um, even some of the, the factors that have kept uh, parents at home. Maybe they're working from home uh, because of the pandemic or they've lost um, income. And that impacts uh, whether they're able to even send children uh, to your facility. That's huge. That's very important. Uh, some of the parents here, we've offered tuition discounts for people just to keep the kids that really need it uh, in the program. Um, and that's hard to do because we're a prop for profit and the, our, our profit margin is so low to begin with because we are childcare. And the other thing is, is staffing is we could, um, you know, if we had more teachers, then maybe we could do a little bit more marketing, like I said, with uh, expanding our program services, but we can't get qualified teachers in and the huge thing about that is that that the cost of what they're getting if they're coming out of uh, college um you know kindergarten teachers average 38 and up to start and the preschool teachers are, are being offered 15 dollars to 24 dollars. it's less than half of what they're getting other places so they're not staying and then the qualified teachers who we have are, are are not staying because they can get better jobs and more money working for Amazon. So that's a huge struggle too, is finding qualified teachers. Um, the, the other thing is just 
the morale is so low because it's so stressful. The parents are, are suffering. The kids are, are small groups, so they're not learning as much as they would in a, a setting where you're doing group activities and, and having a bigger social interactions. And then the staff, I worry about the mental health there too. Where are you getting support, Veronica? Uh, OEC has helped us hugely by having um, a couple of grants and we've really stayed in the loop there. They helped us get supplies in the beginning when we could not get our hands on sanitizer and masks. They they had location spots where we could hit, get them. We just went to a big one where we, uh, we had all the cars lined up and it was amazing. Then I think it was the reserve or the national guard was there helping and we were able to get test kits, which are huge. And as you know, in shortage, so we've gotten most of our support from uh, office of early childhood hmm. and we're yeah. non um, We're not a, pro a nonprofit and we're not state funded. So we are going to be the first to go. We're going to be the first set subset to have to shut down and close. You're hearing Veronica Phelps here on Where We Live, director of my school in East Hampton, Connecticut. That's a, a early childhood center, a child, child care provider in our state uh, who is struggling like many uh, to stay open well, with so many factors impacting enrollment and staffing. Um, if you're also experiencing this, we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Veronica mentioned the Office of Early Childhood a few times. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is the Commissioner of the Office of Early Childhood for Connecticut. That's Beth Bai. Welcome back to the show. Oh, good morning, Lucy and uh, Veronica. There couldn't be a better spokesperson for the field than you. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing the complexity of it all. What are you hearing from other child care providers, Commissioner Bai, similar to, to Veronica's uh, concerns and the challenges that she's going through day by day? Um, it is so tough out there right now for early childhood providers, and, and I urge your listeners to um, be, be caring to them. They have been caring for parents. They're great support to parents and to young children at, at what is a really difficult time. At the same time, their business models are under incredible threat. As you could hear from Veronica, they already had a very slim profit margin because parents can't really afford to pay the full cost of care. And so between concerns about the virus, uh, concerns about families, um, as Veronica talked about, the stress on teachers and programs, it's it's really difficult out there on, on every level. So when we talk about uh, shortages or, or programs that have had to close, we've been on the show before since uh, the height of the pandemic, Commissioner Bai. How bad is it today? What does uh, the supply look like right now? Well, our, our supply, uh, we're doing really well in Connecticut because we were able to get those federal funds out quickly. Governor Lamont was really clear that he wanted the funds out to programs. He was listening to programs and hearing the challenges they faced. Um, so um, we got $108 million out to programs, as Veronica said, private, nonprofit, for-profit. We think all parts of the infrastructure really matter um, very much. So um, we, we have lost fewer than 1%, just about 1% of licensed programs in Connecticut. That includes family child care and centers, and, and family child care has been a critical part of the infrastructure during the pandemic. Um, but our capacity, so that is the number of slots available, 
um, is up about 1% since 20, um, I think I did this back to 2018, you know, just pre-pandemic to post-pandemic. Um, but capacity doesn't mean they're open. We have at least 100 classrooms, I would guess more across the state closed because there's not a workforce. Childcare is the lowest paid profession. Um, it's how I got involved, being an advocate for worthy wages is how I made my way into public policy uh, because I would lose teachers all the time. And it's worse now than it was 30 years ago. Um, so um, we're doing really well in Connecticut, but I think you could hear in Veronica's voice um, that we are nearing the end. You know, those funds went out and they can be used for three years, but programs have needed them now. Um, family child care and centers have had to use their funds. So we, we were hoping, you know, Build Back Better would have brought $168 million into the into child into Connecticut for child care alone. And that doesn't include the UPK number, the funds for universal preschool. And we were very hopeful about that, but that has taken a pause. And so now uh, I think to Veronica's point, we've got to listen hard to what's happening out there and respond with um, the resources that are available. You mentioned uh, President Biden's uh, $2 trillion spending bill that would uh, give uh, needed money to the child care industry and, and talking through with us uh, would receive $168 million. Connecticut could receive $168 million. Uh, but can we talk about some of the, the sustainable measures to help uh, people like Veronica? So when we think about declining enrollment, the fact that she said a lot of people aren't interested now in early childhood. They go, they want to mm -hmm. uh, go to profession uh, like in the elementary or secondary level. Um, so how do we uh, help uh, this industry uh, at a time when there are so many factors pushing against it? Yeah, there are so many factors. I do think the workforce is the biggest challenge right now. And we are working with the CSCU system, the community colleges and uh, the lab schools at the community colleges, which are, which are training grounds for early childhood teacher, much like a chemistry lab is there for people majoring in chemistry. And some of our private colleges are participating as well to help encourage more people to come into the field. We're launching a, a workforce campaign. We have a new job board that's free to program, so they're not having to pay $75 every time they post. We've, we've waived some of the sort of fees that really add up to programs, like uh, the office is paying accreditation fees for programs that are seeking accreditation. And we're paying all the fees for background checks for all employees. Um, trying to remove those barriers um, as best we can. And I know you have Erica Phillips here. Uh, we really believe that both the family child care networks and some of the quality supports in place for centers um, can help programs with problem solving and support. Um, so, it, you know, we're trying a lot of things, but this is a broken market and we have to understand it's a public private market. And so uh, the solutions are more complex, but I think what was in Build Back Better uh, was really the right answer. It, it, you know, people aren't going going to go into a field where you get a bachelor's and make $20 an hour um, when there are so many other opportunities. And Build Back Better would have um, brought the pay rate up to that of public school teachers. It's such a great profession. I, I've had such a wonderful career. I think Veronica will agree with me. Um, but uh, the workers in childcare have been holding up the whole system with their low wages and um, hard to make a profit. So what's happening over time is we get more childcare deserts because the centers are only opening where they can make a profit. So we've got to look at our subsidy system 
and um, look at our state-funded child care programs to make sure they can sustain uh, so the child care desert problem doesn't get worse. Mm. Veronica is still with us. Again, Veronica Phelps, who's uh, uh, the director of my school in East Hampton. Uh, did you want to respond to what Commissioner Bai shared? And again, this this delicate balance you're struggling with, with maybe staffing shortages, but also this decline in enrollment. Um, I, I am aware of the work that the OEC is doing, and I think that uh, the legislators have to be brought in the loop so that they understand what an integral part of, of our society, our community that this early childhood is. And I think that's where we need to go because the Build Back Better was phenomenal and they dropped the ball. They dropped the ball and they need to find a way to pick it back up. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about child care, so uh, vital to, to families. Uh, but yet, and when we look at how our country funds uh, child care, uh, it's pennies compared to what some other uh, nations around the world uh, allocate uh, to help families. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Commissioner Bai, we got a question uh, from Steve, uh, who writes, in the U.S., we seem to privilege corporations over people, and thus far we haven't seen the investment in quality child care that other nations have made. Where are Connecticut's business leaders on this issue? Do they get the true all-in economic cost of inadequate child care? Um, I, I really appreciate that question, and in fact, it's it's ironic. I, I, it's in a good way. I was on a call this morning with CBIA, who is helping us bring businesses together. Uh, Governor Lamont um, hosted business leaders at his house this summer to talk about childcare and how important it is and uh, listen to and talk to them about ways that they can help. And so both listening to their concerns, but also um, thinking about ways that they can help. So we are in the midst of developing a, a business coalition. Um, and and um, I know I've spoken with Indra Nui a few times, who is a, a former CEO who really believes in childcare and is offering you know, support and ideas and guidance on this topic as well. So I'd say the business community is really engaged. Uh, Lego has been particularly engaged in asking what can they do to help. And the governor's um, very interested in connecting with business because I think, you know, we believe it's a bi-directional thing. Childcare helps business and business um, can be a part of this childcare solution. Uh, Merrill's calling in from New Britain. He's the director of early childhood development. Uh, Merrill, what did you want to share about this uh, conversation we're having? I wanted to share that uh, yesterday we had uh, a large group of child care providers on a, a Zoom meeting with uh, Senator Blumenthal, and we uh, put out a poll where we asked uh, the providers, how many of you had experienced difficulty hiring staff? And we had 89% said they had. We asked how many of them have vacancies now, and it was 81%. Um, and then we asked how many of you are under-enrolled because you don't have the staff to staff classrooms, and we heard 57%. Um, and then we asked, okay, if you are under-enrolled because you don't have enough staff, do you have a wait list of children? And 69% uh, said they had a wait list, but they didn't have enough staff to run their classrooms. And then the most important one, we asked how many of them were operating below break-even. And 62% of the program said they were operating below break-even. Um, we, we are in a better place because OEC got money out quickly, and we have K-12 
kept programs from closing so far, but now that Omicron is hitting childcare providers harder because it's more contagious and children are getting it, we've got a, an even worse problem. And it's the staffing issue which is directly related to programs not being able to pay competitive wages because parents can't pay enough to afford that total cost. That's our underlying problem, and that's why government needs to um, put in some money here. Again, that's Merrill Gay, Executive Director of the Connecticut Early Childhood Alliance. Uh, thank you, Merrill, for sharing uh, those uh, numbers with us. Uh, Commissioner Bai, did you want to respond? Um, wow, those numbers are... I, I was on the call for the beginning of the call yesterday and, and saw the polls go up. I hadn't heard their results, but I think they tell the story uh, very well of what's going on and, and why we're in this position right now. And, and I would say, I should also say with Merrill on the line that Connecticut um, really has partnered with advocacy organizations um, to hear what's happening in the field. So they're incredible about sharing this data with the office. Um, but this just speaks to the urgency um, that that is here. And I'm grateful that Senator Blumenthal was on. So um, we, you know, he can keep the pressure up in uh, DC. Um, so th those are, you know, th that is not a sustainable business model with more than 60% of programs operating below break even. We've been able to hold on because of the, the COVID money did exactly what it was designed to do. Um, but it can't continue. You know, the, the programs can't continue without more federal help. And I should also say the state has put in a good amount of, of, its, of its dollars to, um, in just this fiscal year, um, we're committing about $21.5 million of additional funding to state-funded centers because they're under-enrolled and they're paid by child. Um, we have the ability to help them with the state appropriation. Um, so we can help them, but you know, as you heard Veronica say, uh, most programs are private. And so the Build Back Better would help private and public really build a public-private system. So that's why we need that that bill to pass or certainly uh, parts of it to pass. And the child care part is critical. Veronica is still with us, again, director of my school in East Hampton. Veronica, you shared a little about how you're, you're trying to be creative uh, in these trying times uh, to stay open, to still serve families that are able to keep their children enrolled. Um, you know, the COVID surge hopefully um, will be declining. And so, uh, you know, how do you, what do you anticipate in the next couple of months for, for your child care center as, uh, as we talk about this federal legislation that's stalled right now? Well, we're putting out all the surveys to find out if we're going to be able to keep chugging along. Um, one of the, the things that's uh, interesting is to, to people who are in the know and realize what a great asset it is to have the kids come to preschool before they get into their kindergarten, learning how it's they're scaffolding off what they learn here and, and the social and the emotional that during the summer, we're going to try to offer some more preschool, formal preschool programs as opposed to just recreational so that we can kind of catch up for some lost time. So we're, we're trying to keep our mission of, of giving a good foundation to the kids to get them going through their next 12 years. At the same time, it's hard to be proactive when you're backpedaling and, and we need that funding. I can't say it enough. 
Well, Veronica, thank you for coming on the show and reaching out to us a couple of weeks ago to talk about this uh, issue in, in so many communities. And keep in touch with us. Let us know how you're doing and how you're faring over the next few months. Thanks thank for your you. time today. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Beth By will stay with us. She's commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. And we want to hear from you. What have been your experiences finding child care in your town? Has it been a struggle to keep your child enrolled? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have you struggled to find child care or keep your children enrolled with a child care provider during the pandemic? We want to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There are several reasons the child care industry is struggling, from shortages of workers to fewer enrollments due to, to the pandemic. Families are dealing with illnesses and long quarantines. Others have lost income and can't afford child care. Earlier, we heard from the owner of a private child care center. Now, what are the local solutions to bolster child care in our state? Uh, with us on Zoom is Beth Bai. She's commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. Um, commissioner Bai, uh, we talked about um, some of the reasons uh, why uh, the market is broken, something you've also said, because parents can't afford to pay what it costs for child care. Child care providers aren't paid what they deserve. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about some of the solutions uh, that your office and others have come up with in terms of uh, boosting child care options in towns, including um, getting more family child care um, um, providers up and running. Yeah, really appreciate that. Um, well, we, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when, um, you know, the governor did not shut down child care, but many closed or temporarily, um, family child care as a rule uh, mostly stayed open. They were very small settings. These settings are um, in people's homes. It's six or fewer children, nine with after school kids, but generally very small groups. And um, these providers stayed open. And um, uh, the Early Childhood Funders Collaborative um, reached out to me and said, maybe we could expand what's happening um, 
to support family childcare at this time because you know they're tiny businesses, um, fragile, and uh, they were an important part of the childcare infrastructure for those critical uh, workers that were working in the pandemic. And so um, we worked with 4CT and were able to get a million dollars to expand from five to 12 staff family childcare networks. Uh, and family childcare networks, Erica can, can give you even more details, but they are incredible resources to these small businesses. They help them with supporting quality. They help them figure out how to get licensed if they wanna expand um, and uh, help them with their businesses. How do we run a small business? So. Um, we knew, and also we supplied uh, some nurse support to these programs throughout the early pandemic. Um, so this was a, a really um, good idea, and uh, we had been piloting it for a couple of years, um, but the pandemic, we said we've really got to get more supports out there. Um, and that has led to us, though we've lost some family childcare capacity, really very little, especially as compared to the 10 years prior. Um, so we think these networks have been critical and um, Erica's on from all our kin. They're really one of the innovators in this space. And uh, we've learned from them and from the other four pilots and we're able to partner with family resource centers and get these in 12 um, parts of the state to really uh, support these programs. Uh, when we look at the state and, and where you have uh, identified or others have identified, what well, I guess would be considered child care deserts. How did you use data to think about where to better fund mm -hmm. and, and help these providers? Yep. Yes, we really did use use data with our stabilization efforts uh, because we already had deserts. We couldn't afford to lose supply in some of those highest need communities. Um, so uh, we used the social vulnerability index that was being used with vaccine. This is where you know COVID gives some innovation. And that helped us get down to the census track level to see where the highest need, needs were. And um, programs that had a high social vulnerability score um, got 35% more funding, 25% or 35%, depending on how high a need uh, that census track was, um, because we knew those programs needed no, more support and we couldn't lose them. And family childcare is really filling a gap in some of those deserts. And so, um, they also got the bonus if the family childcare home was in a, um, a high need area. So um, we did use data to inform and it, it really, it's given us lessons going forward, even as we think about developing, you know, uh, a more supported early childhood system in Connecticut, combining the UPK and childcare and build back better and the existing systems in Connecticut. When we talk about uh, child care options for families, you know, it's it's common for parents to look up accredited child care mm -hmm. centers. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we think about family child care providers, and these are people that have small businesses out of their home, the ratio is much smaller, as you mentioned, I think six kids. And, and I'm wondering if you can talk through those options, because something that Veronica had said earlier in the show is, you know, the importance of early childhood. And sometimes people, uh, they don't uh, think about this as a, a vital time for children uh, to have that kind of interaction and the importance of having uh, people um, who are trained uh, in, in, in early childhood development. Um, so talk through those options. and when Sure. 
and how when you think about boosting the family child care providers, you know, um, you know how you um, license them and, you know, how this is a credible option for people. Yeah, I, re- I really appreciate that question, Lucy. Um, I think you could ask any kindergarten teacher and they would tell you they can absolutely tell the difference between a child that's had high quality early childhood and a child that has not. Um, they're learning social skills, they're learning those executive function skills to wait their turn, to help others. Um, they're learning, you know, um, early literacy and early numeracy and early childhood professionals are the most incredible people. Um, I'm sure there are thousands of people listening who will back that up. And they really encourage, like they really work directly with parents too. So it's a wonderful support. Those first five years can be very isolated for parents. And those early childhood providers really provide important support to families and also just sort of to gauge, how's my child doing? You see them in a classroom. Um, And high quality early childhood is very much play-based and it can happen in the context of a home. Family child care home is a wonderful option for families and often more flexible with changing work times. And child care and preschools uh, centers are really great options for families too. Um, And and we do in Connecticut sort of, we've given additional funds as well to programs that are NAEYC accredited or meet Head Start standards. Um, as a way to, again, preserve that those high quality settings. And family child care homes can be accredited too, and we're working to support them to get accredited. But um, we also pay more if a family child care home uh, owner has a child development associate or, or other degrees in early childhood. And many of them do, very many do. So um, family child care is a really really good options I think sometimes that that families don't think about but Build Back Better is designed to be center-based family child care and public preschool it's really a complex system Um, but I will say the superintendents in Connecticut have been super engaged understanding how important early childhood is and really concerned about um, what they saw this year when and last year when so many children came without those experiences Um, it's really affected the kindergarten classrooms um, and even onto first grade classrooms. So um, it takes all of us, all, it's going to take all parts of the system to support families and children in those early years. And the brain is both very vulnerable at those ages and also um, there's great potential in those early years in the brain uh, development. And I think high quality early childhood settings and early childhood providers help families uh, land on the side of great potential. You know, just to be fully transparent, I used uh, family uh, home uh, child care providers for both of my children. And when I was researching, and this can impact people too, when you're thinking about budgets, uh, often these family child care uh, providers are less expensive than what some of these private uh, child care centers are charging per week. And can you talk about that, Commissioner Bai, about uh, the different options there for families uh, who are struggling? Yeah, there really there really are different options. And, and also there's, you know, for families that um, are struggling with affording child care, the governor has significantly expanded the child care subsidy system, um, which is care for kids. So parents can go to 211 um, online. Uh, United Way of Connecticut is our partner there and 211 um, will help you locate child care in your area and also has a little benefits calculator that will make it easy for you to see would I qualify for help with childcare, whether it's in a family home or a center, it helps both places. Um, 
And uh, that expansion has expanded to workforce development, which uh, people in workforce development or in school didn't used to be able to get any childcare subsidy in Connecticut. And the governor has signed some of the federal funds to support people that want to take that next step or first step, um, but have children and need childcare. So there are good options. Um, and I think more centers now have flexible days and family childcare homes can be flexible. That, that's another way to reduce the costs is to say, you know, I'll, I'll send my child three days a week based on my work schedule, um, et cetera. Um, but know that whether it's a center or a family childcare home, you want a licensed program and um, the Office of Early Childhood uh, will be uh, doing an unannounced visit every year to every program. So you know that you're getting um, that when you sign up for um, a licensed program. Unfortunately, we're, we're still in this pandemic and this uh, surge. And I'm wondering when we think about the updated public health guidance, you know, what resources your office provides for family child care providers as well? Yes. Um, well, we have supported uh, family child care homes uh, with the um, nurse line, as I said, and also um, we, um, the network supply them with, you know, different kinds of supports as well. And um, also, you know, the, there were periods of time when um, we simply paid care for kids during the pandemic to help programs that were reliant on families with care for kids. Uh, to attend um, at times when the enrollment was down to try to help help that way. Um, but these, I think the networks you're going to hear from Erica offer a lot of help. And we've also partnered with Connecticut Women's um, Business Development Center to provide small grants and um, business supports to family child care homes and centers as well. But as far as the concerns, because uh, children four and under aren't able to get uh, the, the vaccine. Yeah. And so we were hearing, yeah. you know, some oh, providers will, yeah. that's okay. Uh, some let, providers yeah. will. Let me um, get on that. It has been incredibly <laughs> difficult yeah. uh, on the public health side of things for programs the past month. Uh, you know, the early phases of the pandemic, there were not many cases in child care. Um, and now there have been many and many classroom closures. It's incredibly difficult for families. Um, we have worked with Department of Public Health to issue guidance and then update that guidance uh, as the CDC updates the guidance. Um, we sent out a new guidance last evening um, to, to just be try to be clear and we encourage programs to work with their local health departments as well because the thing about a pandemic is it's also unpredictable. So every case is very different. Every exposure is different. Um, and so often programs need to lean on local health um, because we, we are sort of the education and, and operations organization and, and we work closely with DPH and local health to support uh, those, those needs. But it's been really difficult. We've been trying to get guidance out and be clear about the guidance, but that takes time you know, to, to vet through the, the, the process. So um, we're trying to keep it as up to date as possible. Mm -hmm. And questions about quarantining, whether it's 10 days or five days and, you know, some places requiring the 10 commissioner by. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, there, there, we offer guidance that, that we've updated now where um, if children can consistently wear a mask, um, it's a, it's a five day quarantine. Um, but for those ages uh, where they can't, it's 10 days and where it's um, where we changed a little bit over the past week is, 
Um, children three and under do not need to wear masks in childcare, but for those two to three who can reliably mask, we're saying now they can come back after five days if they can consistently wear a mask um, to, you know, for, uh, to prevent the spread of COVID. And we all hope this is coming to an end soon. Uh, you know, nobody prefers young children wearing masks, but we have been able to reduce the spread of, of COVID in these group settings. Um, and so uh, we all look forward to the day that we don't have to, but right now vaccines and masks are great tools and young children can't be vaccinated. So um, the masks become an even more important tool there. Beth Bai, again, is Commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. Thank you for your time today, and I have a feeling we'll be talking again. Yeah, <laughs> it's to always so nice to be with you, Lucy. Bye-bye. Uh, thank you. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're going to continue talking about child care after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about child care today and how to support the industry that's so vital for many American families. Later today, U.S. Senators Richard Blumenthal and Chris Murphy will be in West Hartford to talk about, uh, to, to talk with child care staff, rather, about the challenges they're seeing, including the impact of this recent COVID surge. Uh, both uh, Blumenthal and Murphy support immediate federal assistance to help providers and families pay for child care. Joining us now on the phone is Erica Phillips, president of All Our Kin, a national nonprofit based out of New Haven that supports family child care educators. Erica, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for raising this important topic. We heard Commissioner Bai talk about uh, how pivotal family child care providers have been in this pandemic. Can you talk about the role of All Our Kin plays uh, in uh, this community uh, to support um, families? Absolutely. For more than 20 years, All Our Kin has been training, supporting, and sustaining family child care educators. Through our innovative model, uh, we see a triple win. First, providers become more successful small business owners. Second, families have flexible, high-quality child care options. And third, and most importantly, children are prepared for their next steps, both educationally and social-emotionally. Who are the people we're talking about? Are they often women of color that are providing this care in communities? And what is the, um, has been the impact on them uh, during this surge and how they're able to continue, continue, continue to operate? Absolutely. So 95% are women uh, and uh, over 40% are Black or Latinx. We also have a significant number of providers who uh, immigrated from other countries. Um, there are many languages spoken amongst the providers that we work with. Um, and so it's a very, very diverse group. Um, it represents one of the most racially diverse and, and unfortunately uh, lowest paid sectors of the teaching workforce. Mm -hmm. 
You've been in this field uh, for more than 20 years. We know that childcare has been underfunded uh, long before the pandemic. And so we heard about the need for additional federal funding. Can you talk about that and what you're hearing from your uh, community at All Our Kin? Absolutely. Uh, this has been a incredibly tough time. As Commissioner Bai talked about, uh, family child care educators have really been the unsung heroes of the pandemic. At the height of the pandemic, over two-thirds of the programs we work with stayed open. Uh, currently, most of them are open. However, half of them within the last month have had to temporarily shut down for one to two weeks because they had COVID or a child in their program had COVID. And so this is such a difficult time right now. Uh, one provider talked about the emotional toll that COVID has taken now going into almost our third year. They're serving as the child care provider, the parents, the social workers, psychologists, teachers, tech, everything. It's just been a really difficult time. And we want to uh, just let them know that the world does know the role that they're playing. Well, when we talk about these challenges because of COVID, what has that meant for enrollment for these uh, family child care providers? Absolutely. That has been very difficult. Um, many of them have had to temporarily close. And when they do that, families might make a decision to go to another program because families also need childcare. And so there's been a lot of instability, a lot of movement between programs. Um, most of them are not enrolled. And uh, earlier, uh, Meryl from the Early Child Alliance talked about 60% of the programs are not uh, at break even, we see that in the home based family child care where they're under enrolled and the cost of expenses have went up. And so um, they're definitely struggling financially right now. So, what keeps them uh, doing this, uh, Erica, when we hear about these disruptions, the fact that, you know, pay um, isn't great in, in early childhood and they're, they're struggling uh, to figure out how to continue to be open? Um, are people thinking about other careers at this point? Uh, unfortunately, yes, they are. Um, the educators we work with, they got into this because they love working with children, they love supporting families. and. They are continuing to go above and beyond. However, I was uh, talking with a provider, actually a nationally accredited provider from Bridgeport who had an amazing program and she decided to, that she needed to close her program and she's now working at Amazon because she needed the benefits and the stability for her family. Uh, it's just a really unfortunate time. Um, most providers are staying in the field they are there for their families uh, and using resources that the Office of Early Childhood is putting out. The grants that Connecticut got out really quickly were very helpful, um, but we do need more now as we're going into another wave. Educators are just mentally exhausted and they're physically um, strained. Uh, there's a woman in West Haven, Bernadette Engo, who's a family child care provider. I believe she might be part of uh, the All Our Kin uh, community yeah. as well, but she testified at a Senate hearing about the need for more funding. How is she uh, still operating today, Erica? Bernadette is still open and caring for children. Uh, recently, Bernadette talked about a story where there was a family whose child was sick and unable to go to the program. 
And even though she relied on the income from that family, she couldn't charge them because she knew that they didn't have uh, the funds to to pay for childcare um, while their child is sick. And so that's just one of the ways in which all of the providers are going above and beyond. Um, but Bernadette is still open and um, still doing everything she can do to make ends meet. One of the things I will say is the community that they have, the support that all our kin provides, um, that the other family child care providers provide each other is a lifeline. And, um, you know, we're just working together to try and be there for families and the community. You mentioned the lifeline. So thinking about helping them with emotional support, self-care, stress management, uh, that's really important right now. Absolutely. Um, We often will go on Facebook Live and just connect uh, when people are in their homes and they're not able to see another adult all day um, with just the children. We'll give calls. Our team is, is calling the providers all the time to check in on them to make sure that they got the latest information. Um, They're dropping off supplies. And uh, just being a listening ear to the providers across the state um, and offering any resources and support that we can. You've been hearing Erica Phillips here on Where We Live, president of All Our Kin, a national nonprofit based out of New Haven that supports family child care educators. Erica, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Uh, Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, music schools in Philadelphia denied her admission because she was black. So did a segregated concert hall, leading to a fight for civil rights. On the next Where We Live, did you know the great opera singer Marian Anderson lived and sang in Danbury? We'll learn about her life, and we'll talk about the lack of diversity in opera to this day. You can join us that conversation tomorrow.